I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. David Robertson. David is a neuroscientist and biomedicine entrepreneur. He received his PhD in neuroscience from Harvard University. And David and I actually did our PhD work at about the same time, which is where I was first exposed to his work, which focuses mainly on the neuroscience of pain perception and pain management. He is also the founder of Blue Therapeutics, a biotech company that works to develop better therapies for pain and other ailments, including opioid drugs that lack the addictive properties and overdose potential of traditional opioid drugs. Our conversation focused mainly on pain. How does our brain sense and perceive pain? Why does pain sometimes become chronic and last for a long time? How do various classes of pain drugs work to relieve pain? We discussed uh, NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen. We also talked about opioids, including oxycodone, heroin, and fentanyl, as well as some interesting novel pain drugs currently in development. A portion of the podcast has a visual component. We did a pretty good job, I think, of describing it for those just listening listening, but if you look at the YouTube version, David shows us some videos of the technology he has helped develop that allows for automated high-throughput measurements of animal behavior in ways that allow scientists to detect and measure pain in objective ways. Towards the end, we also discussed how this technology could be used in other ways, such as the characterization of novel psychoactive drugs and their effects, as well as applications relevant for psychedelics. As always, if you enjoy the content you're receiving on this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. You can find the video version on YouTube, where you can like and subscribe to the video portion of the podcast. You can also find the audio version on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast medium that you might use. You can also sign up for a free weekly Mind and Matter newsletter at mindandmatter.substack.com. There you'll get access to upcoming guests and topics, other podcast news, links to other written content I've produced, as well as links to interesting resources research, and other things that have crossed my path recently. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural cannabis company specializing in dose-controlled cannabis products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. And with that, here's my conversation with David Robertson.
David Robertson. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Can you start off by just telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what your background is? Sure. Um, my name is David Robertson, as you know. I um, am a neuroscientist and, and biotech entrepreneur. Uh, my general expertise and, and, and experience in, in, over the past, say, decade has been in analgesic pain drug development. Um, I also have a really uh, strong interest in um, addiction, and there's a lot of overlap, as you might expect, between addiction and, and pain, especially in the drug development space, as well as trauma, um, which, which interacts with both the pain and addiction spaces quite a lot. Um, so that's kind of, a, you know, sort of my, my uh, academic and professional interests. My training is I'm a, a PhD trained neuroscience. I also have an MBA. Um, and uh, you and I kind of cross paths along both our, uh, our journeys there. Um, and yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the 10,000 foot view. Yeah. So you're, you know, for people listening, David is a pain expert. That's one way of, of describing you. And I thought we would just start out with a very deceptively simple question, I think, which is what is pain? Yeah. So um, it's a good question, right? It, and, it, and it's one of these things that, um, you know, academics uh, have you know, for decades really kicked around and, you know, it's, it's, it's complex. It's hard to describe. And at the same time, we all get it. And we all understand and know what it is. Um, you know, the, the official definition from the International Association for the Study of Pain is that pain is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. So, you know, it's, um, it, it's, it's, complex, um, but, but at the same time, simple. Okay. So like if something, if you hear like a very loud sound or something, or someone, uh, suddenly touches you on the back to scare you, there's no real damage done to your body. There was no real threat there. The stimulus might in another context be perceived as painful, but Mm -hmm. the sensory, the sensory side doesn't also come with that actual or potential tissue damage component. So we don't tend to call something like that pain, but something where there is physical damage that might have happened or that did happen, you would call that painful. Well, and, and, and even to your example there, you know, a really loud noise, if persistent, will cause hearing damage, right? And so mm-hmm. um, it does seem like the things that do cause us uh, sort of pain and, and, and sort of trigger a, a reflexive withdrawal, whether it's to cover our ears or to, you know, pull away from a hot, hot surface, um, those tend to be stimuli that are um, uh, painful, or I'm sorry, that, that are uh causing damage if they persist. I see. I see. And so how, how do we actually detect pain? So what does the, the sensory neuroscience of this look like when you touch a hot stove or you yeah. get pricked with a pin, what's actually going on? How do our neurons actually sure. distinguish those stimuli from something innocuous? Right. So there are uh, several categories of uh, sensory receptors that are on, you know, in the skin, for example, um, among those are, are the TRIP channels, such as uh, TRIP V1, um, the TRIP M class of, of uh, receptors, um, as well as other uh, sensory channels that, together with um, uh, TRIP channels or other uh, sensory uh, modalities, can can be perceived as pain. Um, there, there are several different types of pain receptors, right? So 
uh, the one the one that um, I think maybe most people might be familiar with, or at least have uh, you know seen on their radar in the past year is uh, Trip V1. So Trip V1 is an interesting channel. Um, uh, David Julius discovered this channel a few years ago, and, and in 2021 got the Nobel Prize for his his discovery, along with Artem Potapudian, who discovered some piezo channels which are responsible for. Um, tactile sensation. Um, but the TRIP-V1 channels are both um, chemosensory, so they detect chemicals such as capsaicin that makes you know, chili peppers spicy, and they also detect heat. So they're a, they're a non-selective cation channel. So it's a, you know, they, they're in the, the membrane of, of our, the sensory nerves in our skin. And when they're activated, they open up and, and they, uh, um, allow ions in that causes depolarization and that sends a signal to the brain that is uh, typically, you know, perceived as pain. Interesting. So, so there's different types of neurons in the skin, in the periphery, and there's a bunch of different types, some of them, and they're all like tuned to different types of sensation based on these receptors or these channels that they have. And some of them focus mostly on mechanical, you know, physical sensation. Some of them are more chemically oriented or temperature oriented. And broadly speaking, all of those things are, are the different lines that, that different pain signals can get into the brain from. Exactly. Exactly. And so what about, you know, people talk a lot about acute versus chronic pain. And, and I think we all intuitively understand those things, but can you unpack what the difference is there and how it connects to, you know, pain that's detected in yeah. the periphery on our body versus pain that's in the head, so to speak? Right, right. So that's, that's a really good point. And, you know, um, generally speaking, chronic pain is a pain that is ongoing and usually lasts longer than about six months. Um, you know, there are varying definitions depending on different contexts and, 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 and whatnot, but generally speaking, an acute pain is the pain that is caused by a stimulus. The stimulus can be present, such as, you know, when you touch your hand on a hot stove, or it can be um, uh, a downstream sequela, such as inflammation caused by a painful stimulus that then continues activation or sensitization of those pain neurons. That, that is generally what we think of, or at least what I think of as acute pain. Chronic pain happens when those signals, um, or, or, or I should, let's turn it, turn it on its head. Um, chronic pain is when, when that perception of pain persists beyond the, the time that we would expect it to, um, you know, for example, an injury may be healed, but you still have the pain and, and it physiologically, uh, structurally, there's nothing visible or detectable wrong, but you, you still are perceiving pain or pain-like, uh, phenomena such as, uh, allodynia, which is, um, you know, something normally that didn't used to be painful, but is now painful. So light touch that, that used to didn't bother you, you know, if someone has, for example, a neuro- neuropathic, chronic neuropathic pain, that may be quite painful. Interesting. So, so, so you, you mentioned a word that I think is really interesting, sensitization. So I want to unpack that a little bit. Um, maybe a, a really good real world example will be just right now. I have a big bruise on my leg from kickboxing. And you know, if I, if I lightly touch it, I get a little pain. Whereas if I do that anywhere else in my body, no big deal. How do we think about that? Is it literally that the area is inflamed? And so these pain sensors are being pushed against, and that's just yeah. making them more sensitive. 
Right. No, there, there, there's a lot of um, things that go on that can cause this sensitization. And broadly speaking, the pain sensitization happens either due to peripheral mechanisms. So things happening at or, or near the site of injury or central mechanism, which is are, are things happening in the brain or, or spinal cord. Um, so speaking about peripheral sensitization, which I think is the most easy to, to understand, um, in the case of your bruise, um, there are a lot of inflammatory mediators, you know, just crudely in, in the pain space, we, we, we refer to it as inflammatory soup, right? There's just, you know, uh, a, a, a lot of different cellular uh, released compounds and, and, um, uh, different components there of the inflammation process that cause pain neurons to be sensitized, meaning that they, it reduces the threshold necessary to generate an action potential and send that signal to your brain. Uh, so that's peripheral sensitization the, the, uh, the flip side of that, or I guess the, the other end of the, 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 uh, line is, is that in the brain, you have the perception of pain that occurs and you can also have what's called central sensitization. And central sensitization occurs when um, uh, circuitry within the brain itself or the spinal cord become sensitized. And by sensitized, I mean, it takes a lower stimulus to, to generate a, a response than, than previously, right? And so that sensitization can be mechanisms that are within the brain, right? Interesting. So... So I think you, you said it in an interesting way. It's, it's very intuitive to think about peripheral pain. So if you've got a, a neuron, a literal pain sensor in your skin, and it becomes more sensitive, now if I push against the skin there, obviously I'm, I'm going to more easily feel something, including a painful stimulus. But what you're also saying is that inside the brain, there are circuits that become sensitized so that you do genuinely actually feel things as more painful, even though it is literally coming from inside your head. Exactly. Interesting. And it's, it's, it's quite interesting and it works in a way very similar to memories, right? So, um, you know, it's, we can have a memory triggered of virtually anything, any experience we've had. And, you know, uh, we just, just came through the, the holiday season. My family likes to put up a Christmas tree every year. And this year we went and we, we cut down a tree, like an actual green you know, tree at a Christmas tree farm and put it up. And immediately we put up this tree and, and the whole house smells like Christmas. And um, it took me back to my childhood. I remembered that smell and it bring, you know, and so, you know, we can, we, we have these memories that are stored and pain can also you know, be stored as a memory. And, um, you know, those memories can be recalled. Those circuits can be reactivated uh, rather than from, you know, a stimulus coming from the outside by central and internal, you know, brain processes. And that's not to say that it's imagined or uh, artificial pain or, or that it's, um, you know, sort of a, a, a shadow of, of the real pain. It can actually be as intense and intolerable as the original pain itself. Hmm. Um, but when, you know, when, when pain, uh, you know, when you have centrally, uh, triggered pain or, or pain that arises from central sensitization, um, it is at least in part due to uh, something going on in the brain. Interesting. So, so we've got this distinction between peripheral 
and central pain, pain that's arising from inside your brain versus being detected on the surface of your body. And then we've got this distinction between acute short-term pain versus chronic or persistent pain. Can you start to talk a little bit about what are some of the key brain areas or brain networks that one learns about if you want to learn about the central processing of pain? Yeah, no, there, there, it, there are a lot of different circuits that influence, you know, central pain processing. Um, and, and I think broadly speaking, it's divided into um, the sensory component of pain and the emotional component of pain. And so the sensory areas are, as you would expect, the sensory cortex, right? And you've got, you know, this sort of homunculus that represents different parts of the body. And so you do have a sort of almost like a geographic map on your brain of the different parts of your, your body. And those areas are activated to correspond with area in your body where you're feeling the pain. Um, that's, that's the case, uh, at least it's thought to be the case, regardless of whether the, the, the signal is coming from the periphery or, you know, arising from, from central mechanisms or sport, it could be both, right? It could be that, you know, you have a stimulus coming from your body that's sub threshold normally, but because you have sensitization, it's now perceived as pain. Mm. Um, but you, you also have emotional. So, you know, the, the, the emotional, um, uh, perception of pain involves, um, you know, all the different components of the, the amygdala, uh, that are, are involved with, uh, you know, fear and, and aversive emotional sensations. And then you also have even deeper sort of, um, uh, you know, periaqueductal gray and brainstem, uh, areas that are, that are involved in pain. And, and, you know, I like to think of pain as a very primitive, um, uh, sensation, right? And, and it's, it's, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, you know, the most arguably the one of the most essential, uh, you know, sensory feedback mechanisms that an organism can have is to detect danger, right? Mm -hmm. And so detect something that could, could cause injury or, or, you know, uh, threat to your life is, is, is something that's pretty hardwired and, uh, you know, involves some, some really primitive brain areas. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. What, um, in terms of the, the evolutionary and ethological function of pain, one way to think about this is to ask the question of what happens when an animal, you know, a human or, or a non-human animal cannot detect pain? What, is, what does that look like and what tends to happen to those creatures? Sure. No, that's a really interesting question. And you know, there have been several different genetic, uh, genetically um, uh, induced or genetic, you know, uh, problems that people have where they can have inherited lack of sensitivity to pain. Uh, some of these have been, you know, pretty um, widely studied and, and typically what you see in, in these folks is that they have repeated injuries. Um, you know, they can, they can develop, interestingly, they can develop normal, um, you know, relational and cognitive functions and, and they, you know, don't, are, are, don't necessarily have delayed, um, you know, cognitive development, but um, they will have repeated injuries. They often have repeated infections. You know, the, as as children, they will be frequently injured and have you know broken bones and, um, and and things. And and they tend to take take more risks, right? And um, it used to be that you would see these these uh, people would be sort of discovered by the scientific community because they would be 
you know, working in a uh, sort of almost in an entertainment type role or, or, or job, you know, putting needles or, or, or knives into their body to, to you know, uh, to show people that they can, you know, tolerate pain and, 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 and you know, almost like a busker, but, but, you know, doing these, these feats of, of superhuman pain tolerance. But um, yeah, so th these folks do have, um, you know, when you don't have the ability to feel pain, it, it is problematic, right? And, and it, the, these folks tend to have a, a shortened lifespan and, and end up with, with a lot of medical problems. Yeah. I had one conversation on the podcast with a scientist named Matt Hill, who focuses a lot on the endocannabinoid system. And he told the story of a woman from the UK, I believe, and somehow she was discovered. She has a very rare genetic mutation involving her endocannabinoid system. The end result of that mutation is that she had very high levels of this endocannabinoid called anandamide. Mm -hmm. And there were two sort of interesting phenotypes there in my view. And I'm hoping you can connect something here for us because it sort of shows, I think, the link between physical pain as we normally think about it and what you might just call uh, emotional pain. Mm -hmm. And she was both... Um, she was very immune to pain, basically of all kinds. So she had a very high pain threshold. She was the type of person who could, you know, burn her hand on the stove easily and not even not even notice it. Um, but she was also very happy. She basically right. was immune to anxiety, and so she yeah. was just in this persistent good mood. And so I'm wondering if you could start to talk about the link there between what we would think of as perhaps being separate things: this the physical yeah. sensation of of physical pain and anxiety and things like that. No, I, that, that's a that's a great uh, a point and and. An interesting topic for me personally, um, you know, I, and I like, I think most, most of us, you know, we think of physical pain and emotional pain um, being two different things, right? It's, mm -hmm. um, but as I said, you know, physical pain does have a very strong emotional component to it. And there is sort of some philosophy around this as well, that, um, you know, that, that uh, a lot of the mindfulness pra practitioners differentiate between pain and suffering, right? Which mm -hmm. suffering in, in their definition, you know, uh, in, incorporates both a per, you know, perception of this aversive stimulation or stimulus, but also a, um, an intolerance of it, an emotional intolerance of it, right? Um, and so, you know, it's interesting, and, and I think it, it, it does tie into, and I hope we'll get to this in our conversation, it ties into, um, you know, how addiction and sort of seeking after uh, an escape, it can be pharmacological or any other type of escape from pain, is often um, sort of the flip side of the coin of, of, of um, someone who have, you know, people who have chronic pain states, right? They often have trouble with addiction and mm -hmm. um it you know it, it's it's it it's not surprising because um if you have uh persistent pain either due to central sensitization or due to ongoing injury um it's uh it's, it's no wonder that people want to try to diminish that pain um in in some way right and so um you know the, the ways and and, if, and and it goes both ways right so you know, people who um, have physical pain um, and, and become addicted to, for example, opioid drugs um, often also have um, psychological or emotional um, 
struggles or, 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 or uh, pain, right? And emotional pain that, that the drug, the uh, opioids also help with, right? And so that's one of the things that, that I think uh, I didn't realize until I really got into this space was that opioids, while they're, they're really fantastic analgesics, they work really well to reduce the perception of pain. They also reduce the emotional processing of pain and therefore, you know, when, when someone carries a lot of uh, trauma or, you know, psychological trauma that, that um, is, is really uh, difficult to manage and, and, and sit with, uh, the opioid drugs have a way of, of dampening that, right? And so um, it, it's thought you know, that that's why uh, the vast majority of people who are, are prescribed an opioid or try even recreational an opioid will never uh, become addicted, no matter you know, how often or, or they're exposed to it. We see this in, in animal models as well, but there are certain people uh, that, that will, right? And, and um, you know, one hypothesis is that um, these, these people also have ongoing uh, emotional um, you know, pain that they're trying to process and deal with and, and that the opioids help with that, right? Hmm. Yeah, interesting. I want to circle back to that when we talk about opioids in more detail. One of the things I want to clear up up front to help people give get a good foundation here is how we actually measure pain. And so, so let's start with humans because yeah. you know many of us will have actually done this, and I'm still sort of blown sure. away. You know, the maybe two or three times I've had to do this at at the doctor's office where. I say I'm in pain of some kind and they say, well, how bad is it scale of one to 10? I remember being asked this the first time and I, I was like, you know, how do I even answer that? Don't you have yeah. some other way of right, assessing right. this? And they basically told me, no, you have to tell us on a scale of one to 10 and then they have right. some kind of rubric. So, <laughs> you know, with something this subjective, yeah. Um, why, yeah. why is it that it's so hard to measure pain other than asking someone? No, it's, it, it, and it, and it gets to exactly the, the, what you said and it is subjective, right? And the exact same stimulus, if you take, you know, a, a thermal stimulus and, and, and apply it to the, the forearm of, of someone and, and, and apply a certain heat and energy through that, um, some people will find it more tolerable than others and, 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 and certain people will find it quite painful. And so it is very subjective. And, you know, in humans, pain is primarily detected by asking people, how does this on a scale of one to 10 with 10 being the most, you know, most severe pain that you've experienced or could imagine, mm -hmm. right? And so I, I remember the, the first time I personally um, realized the impact of that question. And, and I was um, on, on a flight back from... Uh, uh, transatlantic, transatlantic flight. And my parents had actually been in a, a plane crash back here in the U S and I was coming back with my pregnant wife and, um, you know, trying to, you know, coming back to, to check on my folks. And, and, and fortunately they, they survived and ended up recovering. But, um, at the time I didn't know that. And, um, I had developed a kidney stone, like four hours into a 13 hour flight. Mm. And there was a, uh, a urologist on board. I didn't know what it was. I hadn't had a kidney stone before, but there was a urologist on board who asked me, he's like, you know, how severe is this pain? You know, and, and I was like, um, this is like a, a nine or a 10. I've never, ever, I didn't know I could hurt this bad. Right. Um, and so however, had you asked me, you know, the day before, if I had, you know, broken, 
uh, you know, my, my finger or something that would be quite painful, but not, not kidney stone painful. Right. I would have maybe called that an eight at nine or a 10. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's so subjective. Um, and, and I, and I do feel like, um, you know, my, my wife uh, has, has given birth to, to all of our children. Obviously I didn't do it, but, um, you know, I, and I think a lot of women have this experience where, you know, they, they experience childbirth and realize that, oh, you know, God, this is like the worst pain imaginable. Right. And so um, it's, yeah, it's, but it's very subjective and it's very relative and, and that, but that's really the best we've got. Mm-hmm. Is there any um, reason to think that the, the brain itself is sort of relativizing pain measures, meaning like, you know, if you go through something new, like a kidney stone or a childbirth, that's yeah. excruciating yeah. that your brain sort of recalibrates uh, yeah. all of the other things you've, you've, you've experienced before such that subsequent episodes right. of those things right. are perceived as less painful. I, I don't know. Um, it's, it's a little outside my, you know, a, a little niche of, of pain. Uh, but, but that seems reasonable. Right. Um, certainly that's my experience. Right. Mm-hmm. When, you know, it, but, but at the same time, right. So my relative pain perception changes when I've experienced something more painful than anything previous, but um, it doesn't make, you know, what used to be my, my uh, nine, what is now a seven, any less painful. Right. It just means that I, I there, there's a whole nother level right, uh, of pain that I'm capable of perceiving. So, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, if we measure pain in humans by asking them how painful it is simply because it is so inherently subjective, this brings up another question, which I think is fascinating, which is, you know, we, we develop so many of our drugs and our tools for treating things like pain and other things in animal models. Yes. We do this for pain, but obviously you can't ask uh, a monkey or a mouse or something, right. how much right. pain are you in? So how do we actually assess pain in animal yeah. models in the context of drug development? That's, that's a really great question. Um, so, you know, the, the standard ways that this is, this is done is that, um, and these, these methods have been around for 50, 60 plus years. Um, but you know, the, the model organisms that we typically use for, uh, many areas of drug development in particular for, um, development of neurological drugs, right? So including analgesics, which are pain drugs, are, are to, to try to model, the disease that we're trying to treat in rodents. So the way we model or, or, de- or test pain in rats and mice is to apply a stimulus that is, um, you know, hot, for example, it, like a, a heat stimulus is one example. So a thermal stimulus that's hot enough that um, it's perceived as painful by humans, presumably per- perceived as, as painful by an animal, um, but not so hot that it's just immediately causes severe pain, right? And and so you apply um, a stimulus uh, such as a, a heat stimulus to the paw of an of a rodent, and you wait and you see how long does it take before they perceive the, the stimulus and pull away voluntarily, right? So um, you know, in, in rats and mice, you can apply a say roughly fifty degrees Celsius stimulus, which is like the uh, like the uh, about like the outside of a coffee cup, right? Mm-hmm. With hot coffee in it. And so you apply the, um, uh, that stimulus. And, you know, if you ever touch a hot, you know, warm coffee cup, you can hold it for a few seconds and it's warm mm-hmm. and it's not painful. And then it gets painful pretty mm-hmm. quickly. And it can get so painful that you got to set it down. Right. Mm-hmm. And, 
this is what we see in rodents, right? So you apply a heat stimulus, uh, typically with an infrared beam of light to the underside of a paw of an animal that's in a cage that has a wire floor. And you, and you, you, you sit there literally with a stopwatch in hand and you say, how long does it take for this animal to pull, pull their paw away? Mm-hmm. And typically, you know, somewhere between five and 15 seconds. And, and then you give them a pain drug and you see if that moves the needle in the direction toward extending the time that they mm. uh, can tolerate the pain before they pull away. Um, and the, the flip side of that is if you have, you know, uh, arthritis or, or any other sort of disease that can be modeled in, in rodents, um, that tends to make them more sensitive to this thermal uh, stimulus. So that's generally how pain is modeled in, in rodents. And these are called reflexive withdra- withdrawal assays. We can do the same thing with a, uh, a mechanical stimulus. So we can poke the animal with a certain force on the bottom of the paw and see how, how much force does it take before they pull their paw away from a sort of monofilament, like a, almost like a little piece of fishing wire. Mm-hmm. Right? You just poke them and, and eventually they'll pull away. Um, and this is the best we've got generally. I mean, there are some other ways. There, there are place preference assays and, and some more complicated things that are quite uh, time uh, yeah, they're, 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 takes a lot of animals and takes a lot of time to, to do those assays. And, and frankly, they're not that much better, if any, than these reflexive withdrawal assays. Um, and so, but there are a number of problems. Chiefly, I think, in my opinion, the worst, the, the biggest problem is that we are not necessarily even detecting perception of pain in rodents with this, right? So it's possible and, and uh, in many cases probable that when you apply a heat stimulus to the bottom of the paw of a, a rodent, that it's pulling its paw away as a reflex, right? And, and that reflex, just like when, you know, the doctor taps your knee mm-hmm. and, and, and your, your, your you know, knee, your, your foot jerks, um, that reflex is not due to a, uh, a perception or a voluntary withdrawal, right? Um, it's, it's more of a, a, a reflex, right? It happens independent of our perception and, in, and intention. And so um, that's important because when we take pain drugs, when humans take pain drugs, the intent of those pain drugs is to reduce the perception of pain, right? Um, and so, um, for that reason and, 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 and likely others as well, but um, pain drugs and pain drug development has been an extremely difficult uh, venture. Uh, and um, unlike most drugs, well, actually, I don't say unlike most, you know, most drugs um, do not, uh, let me actually, let me just back up and say this a different way. So when, when you take a drug and you develop it in animals and then you, you, you go into human trials, in many fields, you, you, you might have 70, 80, you know, percent of, of the um, response rate in humans that you have. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm totally like talking circles around myself here. All right. Um, let me just start with pain. When you develop a pain drug and test it in, in rodents, and then you go into humans with that pain drug, nine times out of 10, it fails either due mm. to lack of efficacy in humans or uh, side effects that were not predictable, right? But in, in pain drugs, um, that lef- lack of efficacy, la- lack of, of 
effective uh, predictive potential of the efficacy of the drug is 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 particularly problematic. I see. Um, so many drugs that seem like they're going to be good for pain in a, in a rodent model just don't end up being good for humans. Exactly. No, exactly. And, and, and it's a, a real problem. And, um, you know, the other, the other piece of this is that um, these assays are extremely difficult to do. They, there's a lot of variability, you know, when you, know, you have a, a scientist like myself sitting there, you know, applying a stimulus to an animal, waiting for it to pull its paw away and you, you know, you're timing it with a stopwatch. There's a lot of variability in what I might call, you know, a six second delay before this you know, animal removed its paw might be, you know, eight seconds or four seconds for someone else, or they might not even call it uh, 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 no withdrawal, right? They may, which is the term that we use for something that's pain related withdrawal, right? Sometimes, you know, the animal might just start walking away, right? Mm-hmm. Is it painful or not? And so what we, you know, th- there's a lot of nuance around well, it's a, it's a nociffensive or pain-related withdrawal if the animal pulls its paw away and flicks it, but not if it just lifts its paw and starts walking. But, but as you might imagine, that's very subjective. Right, right. right. So, yeah. So, um, you know, it, it, because of that, it's important that when you do pain studies, both in an academic setting or in a, uh, you know, drug development uh, industry setting, that the same investigator measure all the animals that are in a particular study, right? So you want the same person making all the measurements across all the time points in all the different groups, uh, which is a real bottleneck and, and it makes you know pain drug development very costly. And um, it's, it's a really inefficient way to do things. And, and not least of which it's a really, um, it's not very fun to do the, the studies, right? <laughs> I, uh, spent, I don't know how many hours, um, doing, doing these types of studies at night because pain, you know, rodents are also nocturnal, right? So they're more active in the night, in the dark cycle. And, you know, and, and so I tried to come up with so many different ways to improve on this, you know, using night vision goggles and, 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 you know, doing it in the dark to see if it would get more consistent results. And maybe the animals would be less likely to fall asleep if it was dark and, uh, but yeah, it's very problematic. So are there any new tools and development that take advantage of any, you know, emerging technologies to address this type of problem? Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. Um, and, and this is actually half of my uh, PhD project. So um, did my, my PhD with Clifford uh, Wolf at um, Harvard Medical School and Boston Children's Hospital. Um, and uh half of, you know, half of my PhD project was developing new, new approaches, right. To try to, um, come up with better ways. And, um, I tried a lot of different things, um, you know, videotaping, uh, mice from different angles and, um, you know, uh, different ways to train animals for place preference. But ultimately the, the thing that sort of, um, really stuck and, 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 and has worked the best and actually has, has been something I've, I've uh, spent a, a good part of my career on is developing ways to use um, uh, total internal reflection within a glass sheet, which is um, uh, to basically use this phenomenon to um, create a light signal that gives you a readout of how much pressure an animal is putting or rodent is putting on the floor beneath their feet. Mm. And uh, with this light signal, 
And, uh, you know, for example, different types of machine vision, machine learning algorithms, you can come up with a really um, uh, more, a much more sensitive and objective way to measure pain in rodents. Interesting. Um, so, so literally you can use like, uh, you can use tech to tell quantitatively how much pressure an, an animal is putting on its paw. So if you imagine like exactly. an animal that's walking with a limp, they're going right. to change the pressure and, and you'll right. be able to measure that directly. Right. And you know, another uh, really important piece that I'd like to put put in at this point is that, you know, rodents are actually prey animals, right? So mm-hmm. they're intrinsically fearful of predators. And we are in, in the case of, of laboratory mice, we are their predator. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and there is a phenomenon called pain, uh, fear evoked analgesia. So what happens is that when uh, investigator is present, you see uh, reduced pain per the outcomes, the outputs are, are reduced. The thresholds are increased, right? So it takes a higher stimulus to get the withdrawal. And, and where you really start to see nuance around this is that, it's, it's um, rodents show uh, higher pain levels when female investigators are doing the assay than when male investigators are, are doing this. And Jeff Mogul at McGill uh, did, did some really interesting work on this uh, 10 or 15 years ago, where he showed that um, if you, you know, do these standard reflexive withdrawal assays in, in mice and rats, um, and, and you have a female investigator doing the work, you get, you know, uh, this one threshold level. If you have a male investigator, the animals appear to have less pain, right? So their pain threshold is higher and the, they, they seem to be experiencing less pain, or at least their withdrawal threshold is, is, is reflective of that. But you can get male-like you can get the same response as, as you get with a male investigator simply by putting the t-shirt <laughs> that a man has worn overnight and his pheromones have gotten onto the shirt. You put that in the room with the animal. Suddenly it has the same response as if there was a man in the room. Why? Wow. Right? So, so the basic idea here is, you know, if, if men are generally bigger and that much scarier than female humans to the mouse, the right. mouse, what you're saying is basically that the mice are probably more scared of the male investigators. Yeah. Therefore their adrenaline might literally be jacked up higher. And yes. so they, they can tolerate more pain. Yep, exactly. Right. And, and so, uh, you know, there's just so many problems with having a person present doing these assays. And so, uh, this, this technology that, that, uh, you know, Clifford and I came up with, I also should mention, uh, you know, co-inventors on this are Bob Data and Alex Wilschko, who were quite helpful, you know, when we were trying to ideate and, and really think about how to go about this. Um, but ultimately we came up with a way to put a mouse in a box the glass floor of, of that box has uh, sensors within it, right? That it's got um, that allow as the mouse walks around, each of their footprints creates a light signal that's seen from below, mm-hmm. and uh, you can very clearly see if the animal has a limp, right? Um, and whereas normally, you know, if you look, if you take one of these videos, and I'll show you. I've actually got some examples I can show you. But if you take a a mouse in a box that's uh, you know, say injured, right? Say, say it has arthritis. Um, it's really hard to, to detect from watching the mouse walk 
it's really hard to see if it has a limp or if it's actually favoring one hind paw over the other. It's, you just can't see it from above. Mm -hmm. Right. And you know, the, the hypothesis there is that, um, you know, my, mice being prey animals have evolved to hide signs of injury from the viewpoint of a predator. Right. right. Yeah. And the predator's so, naturally going to want to pick off yeah, the one at the limp. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it really makes a lot of sense. And, and, and frankly, even, you know, even if natural selection won't do that, uh, the types of selection that we do in the lab absolutely will. Right. Mm -hmm. Because any animal, you know, we, we, we've bred mice in the lab for, you know, 50, hundred years, the strains that we have, have been selected over time. If an animal shows any sign of injury, we don't breed it, right? So we're, we're actively selecting for animals that do not show signs of injury or disease. Because when we take a mouse out of the breeding pool, it doesn't mean that we've, we've removed all the mice with a limp, right? Say we're taking out a mouse that has a limp, right? Or is injured. We're only taking out the ones that show a limp, right? right so right. even we have actively done what nature has been doing for millions of years. Um, so all that to say, um, you know, we, the idea was you put, if you put a mouse in a box and leave the room and look at it from below, you know, a viewpoint that predator has never seen, we should see some interesting things. And, and that's absolutely what we, what we find. Interesting. Yeah. Can, can we actually see uh, some of that? Sure. Just a moment. Let me pull this up. Um, so for those just listening, um, we're going to look at some video data now and, and we'll describe it verbally so people can follow on the audio only version, but you, you will be able to actually see this on the YouTube version. Sure. So this, uh, what I'm showing first is just some snapshots, some still images of different types of mouse behavior viewed from above versus from below. And the point of this is just to show that even if you're talking about you know, anthropomorphically defined behavior such as paw biting or licking or, or scratching, right? Grooming. That if you look from above, it's really hard to tell and differentiate between these behaviors. So if you look here it, it, over the left hand column, paw biting um, versus licking, paw licking, or, or uh, you, you can see that like looking from above, they look like they're doing basically mm -hmm. the same thing. Mm -hmm. But when you look from below, you can see so much more detail, right? You can see exactly where the mouth, the animal's mouth is and where the paws are. And, um, and so, you know, this was the first hint that I got that, okay, I'm on to something, right? So you know, I, I, I'd made some devices to, to look from above and from the sides of the animals. And, you know, it wasn't until I put a camera underneath, I was like, okay, now this is the viewpoint that, that we want. Um, so the next thing we did was um, to see if I can get this uh, to move forward. So this, I'm now showing a schematic for those of you listening is this, it's a side view of what this technology looks like, right? So you at the, on the top, you have a mouse that's inside of a box. The floor of the box is made of glass. And beneath that glass, you have a camera. In this case, we're using near infrared light to illuminate the animal and to illuminate the paws. Uh, near infrared light is invisible to uh, mammals. So humans and, and mice cannot see near infrared light. So it, per, it, it gives them the perception that the illusion that they're in the dark. Right. So the animals apparently in the dark and they're nocturnal. So they feel safe. Mm -hmm. There's no humans in the room. So they also feel more safe. And, and we have two different light sources. 
The first light source is over here on the left where it says near infrared trans illumination. And this is simply uh, an LED light shining from below the animal through the glass to, to illuminate their body from below. And then we have a separate set of lights that are shining into the long edge of the glass. So these, these lights are totally internally reflected. It's a phenomenon called frustrated total internal reflection. And every time a beam of light uh, hits that glass air interface, it creates an evanescent wave. And that evanescent light wave uh, diminishes exponentially uh, as it uh, you know, moves to, uh, further from the glass. And, and what, that, what that does, it creates a pressure sensitive signal. So as the animal presses their paw down on the glass, the you know, sort of ridges in their, their skin uh, come more and more in contact with the glass. And, and you, you see that uh, that signal uh, between the paw and the glass becomes brighter, the more pressure it is put, pushed down. Um, and, you know, in this case, we, we, because that signal is, um, you know, on the one hand, you want to see the whole body, which is why we have this transillumination signal, but that transillumination signal can interfere with um, detection of exactly the pre precise time when the paw hits the glass. So um, I'm not sure how clear this will be to the, your, your listeners uh, that, that are not watching the, the YouTube video, but um, you know, if you imagine you you're, uh, have a flashlight looking through a piece of glass and on top of that glass, a mouse is walking around. Well, if every time the mouse puts its paw down, the, the paw creates a little light signal and you're also shining light from below, those two signals are going to kind of cancel each other out and you're going to be able, and, and you're, you're not going to have as clear a distinction as you would if you didn't have the flashlight on. Mm -hmm. And so there are a couple of ways that we've um, used to mitigate this issue and, and, and correct for it. And one is to use simply two different wavelengths of, of near infrared light. With a and, and use two cameras, right? With a bandpass filter on each one, so that your you know the the wavelength of light you're illuminating the animal is different than the wavelength of light that you're illuminating the paws. And the yeah. other way we've done this is to um, uh, alternate the illuminations uh, on on different video frames. So one video frame you look at the paws, and the next video frame you look at the body, and yeah. both work equally well. But but I guess the punchline here is. A, you've removed humans from the environment. You're doing this in the dark in a situation where the animal's sort of maximally comfortable and able to go, out, go about its business unfearfully. And two, you've used cameras and infrared light in a clever way such that every time that a mouse steps on its paw, you can literally see how much pressure that's being put yeah. on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I've got some videos here that, that really are a video is worth a thousand words. So on the left is the paw image. Mm. On the right is the mouse. And then I'm bringing them together here and kind of overlaying them so that you can see uh, what that looks like. And this is just showing a mouse sort of just you know, scratching, kind of walking around a little bit. But um, you know, we've, with the signal from the paws, we've color-coded it so that it's uh, like a heat map. Mm -hmm. and, and that way you can sort of intuitively see um, you know, what the mouse is uh, you know how much pressure is 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 both 
within each paw and, and, and what the difference in the pressure is between the two paws. Yeah, no, I mean, it makes perfect sense. Like I'm, I'm looking at this mouse. I can tell just by looking at it from below that it's, it's standing back on its hind paws and not on its front paws. But then the heat map makes it clear what the computer is going to see, which is the pressure is on those hind paws and it's not on those front paws so much. Right, exactly. And so I've got a couple more videos here. Um, this next video is showing um, sort of the workflow. So, you know, it's, it's not enough to simply, um, you know, show the, the mouse uh, walking around and, and, and detecting limp, which, which I'll show you in a moment. Um, you know, we really wanted to be able to automate this and, and let machine uh, learning algorithms tell us, you know, the, what's going on. And so um, in, in the workflow there is that we uh, basically, you know, used, you know, these machine learning or machine vision algorithms rather to identify um, the four paws and the tail and the snout of the animal. And then on each video frame to orient the, the animal so that it's always facing the same direction. Mm. And this, this makes it much easier for uh, subsequent analysis of each video frame, because you always know that the left paws are going to be on the left side of the, the image and the right paws are going to be on the right. And it's not going to change when the animal turns around and goes the other direction. Um, and then the next, the next video here is um, showing, you know, uh, the unaligned uh, frames. And this is where we've, we've used the algorithm to um, you know, look at each of the paws and the yellow here is identifying the left hind paw of the animal and the blue is identifying the right hind paw of the animal and we can also use the same algorithms to, to identify each of the other paws um, and i want to point out here we're um, using a lot of the off some off the shelf machine learning algorithms deep lab cut is a toolkit that we find really helpful um, to uh, uh, work on this. And we, we actually have a paper uh, that's under review right now. So I don't want to um, you know, preempt where it's going to be published, but we do expect to publish this in the next uh, couple of months. And, and um, all of these uh, algorithms and, and, and the source code there will be made uh, publicly available. So interesting. Yeah. So now you've got a way to, um, it's really an objective way to measure pain yeah. in a more naturalistic setting. Yes. And, you know, what we find is that we can, in, in doing this, um, not only do we see that it's really clear when an animal is in pain versus when they're not in pain, particularly if the, if the pain is, uh, you know, in one of the hind limbs. Um, but we, we also see that we can, we can reverse that pain with a pain drug at a much lower dose than necessary to reverse reflexive withdrawal. And so it's a much more sensitive assay mm. and um, it, it, you know, it's backward, it, it backwards translates all, all existing analgesics work really well. And it's our hope that it will also be quite predictive of future analgesics and that we'll be better able to predict. And the, the last thing I'll, I'll mention that I think is, is I'm really excited about is that it, whereas typically we have to use somewhere between 10 and 12 animals typically per group to get statistical significance in a pain assay. With this um, approach and, and the um, you know, machine learning analysis of these data, we can do the same thing with three or four animals. 
Um, wow. And so we're, we're cutting, you know, the, the, the number of animals needed to be used pretty dramatically. And additionally, we can actually do high throughput screening of behavioral phenotypes of pain and analgesia in mice um, very efficiently. Mm-hmm. I would love to, um, I would love to start talking about some of the different kinds of pain drugs that are out there and how they're actually interfacing with the nervous system. Um, so if we go off of the screen share, I think a good place to start perhaps, oh no, do you have a video that's good for this? Well, yeah, actually let me, um, let me show one last video here of the pain. Okay. Yeah. This goes with what I was just saying. So this is a mouse pain model on the left and you can see that his left hind paw is not as bright as the right. It's mm-hmm. the one he's scratching there with. And, yeah, um, yeah. and then when he, um, the, the same mouse, after we give him an um, analgesic and you see that those hind paws are now equal, right? Mm-hmm. So on the left, you know, he's, he's, he's really favoring one paw over the other. And on the right, he's no longer doing that. I'll stop the share here and, um, and then we can move on. Yeah, that, oh, that makes perfect sense. So the animal's got a paw problem, favoring one paw over the other, and then you give the pain right. med and, and basically that goes away. He doesn't notice. Right, right. right. No, exactly. exactly. Interesting. So um, there's, there's a bunch of different types of pain drugs. Um, sure. This is, I mean, unlike other areas, this is, you know, a place where most people listening will have direct experience with at least some of these. And we've all yeah. heard of probably most yes. of them. Right, right. But, but I wanted to start with maybe just um, sort of an everyday type of pain drug that you can go to the store and buy, and that's NSAIDs, non-steroidal yeah. anti-inflammatory drugs. So right. can you give us, you know, starting with the very basics, what are the NSAIDs that people have heard of? And right. then can you get into like what they actually do to alleviate pain? Right, right. So, you know, NSAIDs, as you said, they're non-steroidal, they're anti-inflammatory drugs, and they, they relieve pain by reducing inflammation. And, um, you know, they work quite well for a lot of different types of pain, um, you know, mus- musculoskeletal pain and strains and, you know, post-operative pain, um, you know, even cer- certain types of headaches, arthritis, colds and flu, you know, pain related to that um, generally respond quite well to, to um, NSAIDs. Um, you know, here in the United States, ibuprofen is, is quite widely used. Uh, in Europe, uh, I, the diclofenac is, 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 is really commonly used over-the-counter NSAID, and they work actually quite well for uh, acute inflammatory pain. Interesting. And then do you know what the mechanism is there? Or is, it like a, is it like a brain receptor they bind to, or is it something else? Yeah, um, there's t- you know, there are two different types of NSAIDs. Um, you know, some of them are non-selective, but um, others are COX-2 selective. And, you know, the COX-2 is um, uh, an enzyme in, involved with um, inhibiting um, pain, but also involved with thrombosis and other things. Um, and, and so, you know, largely you're, you're inter- interrupting or in- intervening in um, uh, the function of an enzyme. Oh, I see. So there's an enzyme in the body that's naturally involved in producing stuff related to the inflammatory response and the NSAIDs get in the way of that. Right. Right. Interesting. So how does that differ from, you know, so we've all probably taken these types of drugs at some point, ibuprofen or whatever. Um, How does that differ from something that's more potent, like an opioid? 
Sure. So opioids, you know, work on a different system, right? Um, opioids work on opioid receptors, which are uh, present throughout the body, um, and they're pre present in the peripheral nerves um, as well as in the spinal cord and in the brain. And opioid receptors are um, you know, the activity of, of opioids as analgesics is um, is probably best demonstrated in the spinal cord, where you have uh, inhibitory circuits, and and you know when you activate opioid receptors, it actually inhibits that pain signal from being sent up into the brain. Mm -hmm. um, and so they they work really well for uh, for blocking pain because they actually can block those pain signals and, and block the transmission of the pain signals in in the spinal cord. Um, and, and they also work in the brain uh, in some of the same uh, you know, circuitry that's involved in processing of pain, both um, in, in, in the uh, somatosensory perceptive uh, areas, as well as the emotional area, uh, areas of perception in the brain. Mm -hmm. And is that tied to why they're not only diminishing the, the perception of physical pain, but there's also a euphoria that's tied yeah. to taking an opioid? Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I, I don't know. I, I think that those things are separable, mm. but there are certainly a lot of overlapping circuits and the, um, you know, the mu opioid receptor, which is the one that's predominantly, uh, uh activated by conventional opioid drugs is responsible both for the pain relief and for activating the circuitry, the reward circuitry of the brain. Yeah. I see. So activating that receptor has analgesic effects, brain right. effects, and it also has this sort of um, emotional feel-good pleasure effect. Yes, exactly. exactly. And so what, um, I mean, I suppose that's tied to the addictive properties of these drugs. Yes, yes, certainly, right? There, you know, opioids are addictive um, for a number of reasons, right? Um, and, uh, you know, there, you know, one, one certainly, uh, is that they, they do activate these reward centers. They cause euphoria. Right. But, um, another thing that makes them quite difficult to, um, uh, makes them quite challenging as a therapeutic, right. And, and, and contributes to really the opioid crisis is that, um, two factors. So one is that you pretty quickly, when you start taking opioid, develop a tolerance, right? Mm. So, you know, the first dose of opioid that you take for, uh, you know, if you've got pain, uh, you know, may, pr may produce, you know, 80 or hundred percent even of uh, pain relief, analgesia. But if you continue to take that drug within a day or two, you'll start having to take more and more of the opioid to get the same pain relief. Right. So there's this escalating dose that happens simply to maintain the same level of pain relief. You have to keep taking more and more and more. Um, the other thing that happens is that when you stop taking an opioid, if you've taken it for you know, a matter of days or weeks and you, and you stop taking it, then you'll have withdrawal symptoms. Mm. So not only do you have to take more and more to maintain um, the same level of pain relief, but when you stop taking it, you just feel like you just feel you have like a flu-like symptoms and you just feel terrible and your pain is even worse than if you hadn't started taking the drug to begin with. Um, so it's, it's, it's really problematic and, and opioids for that reason are, you know, uh, the, 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 
the best practice is really to only use them for acute pain. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Although, you know, there are, there are patients who do take them for chronic pain and uh, sort of seem to have a ceiling effect to that um, tolerance. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, it's these, you know, factors of being both euphoric in, in uh, when, when taken at high levels and, you know, requiring increased doses and then uh, causing withdrawal when you stop taking it are the reasons that, you know, we have the opioid crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, what about, you know, what are, what about the differences between different types of opioids? So for example, um, oxycodone is a famous prescription opioid, I believe, but then, you know, what about something like that versus say heroin? Like what's the, sure. are, are they more or less the same drug or are they quite distinct? Well, they're, they're more or less the same drug, right? Mm-hmm. So heroin and morphine are actually um, uh, effectively the, the same, right? So, um, you know, th- and the way they act on the mu opioid receptors are exactly the same, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it's, it's um, you know, the opioids, whether you're talking about a, a drug of abuse, um, you know, heroin, or you're talking about a... Um, purely prescription drugs such as oxycodone, which certainly can be abused, their mechanism is is still by acting on this mu opioid receptor. And they activate that mu receptor. It's present throughout the body. It's present in the reward circuitry of the brain, as well as in these pain relieving circuits in the spinal cord and and elsewhere. I see. So for opioids, broadly speaking, in terms of the mechanism, the first thing people should think about is mu opioid receptor. Yep. That's the, the, the one that, you know, there are three canonical um, opioid receptors, but the mu opioid receptor is the one that is activated by, uh, you know, all of the uh, opioid, you know, analgesics on the market. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What about, um, you know, this is another one that basically everyone has heard about at this point, but in my lifetime, you know, I went from having no idea what this was to this thing coming to the forefront of everyone's mind and, and U.S. culture right now, which is fentanyl, which yeah. is, I, I believe, one of the, if not the most potent opioid drug that's out there. So why was this developed? What makes it so potent? Yeah. And why yeah. is it, why is it uh, doing what it's doing right now? Yeah, no. So fentanyl is an extremely potent mu, a mu opioid uh, anti- or agonist, right? So it activates the mu opioid receptor at extremely low concentrations, right? Mm-hmm. So the reason it's so potent is that it, it requires such a small amount of it to put, you know, to activate the mu opioid receptor. It just, it just hardly takes any, it was developed as a prescription uh, intravenous use analgesic for uh, surgery. And it's still used in, in that context and it works quite well. Um, I think the reason that it's, um, you know, in the vernacular of all of us now, and and, and everyone's heard of fentanyl, is that um, because it requires such small quantities and because, um, you know, opioid addiction is uh, such a problem, particular in in North America, um, you know, the illicit, you know, drug uh, providers and and the, the folks in the labs around the world that are making illicit opioids have found that it's much easier to, um, you know, make a little tiny bit of fentanyl and ship it wherever it needs to go around the world to, to, to the end user, um, and then dilute it in something that's not fentanyl and sell it as heroin. Right. Hmm. 
So whereas, you know, uh, you know, a certain quantity of heroin might, might be, you know, uh, fit in a thimble, uh, the, the same potency quantity of, of fentanyl might, you know, fit on the, the, the head of a pin, right? Wow. So, so that there's an economic drive there. It actually reminds me of the illicit cannabis market where, you know, the the economics were such that people wanted to get as much potency into yes. as much matter as possible because it made it easier to um, transport this without getting caught. Right. Right. And yeah, and it, it's, it's really problematic. And, you know, personally, I think that, um, you know, we've made it worse with the war on drugs and the way we've criminalized um, people who suffer from addiction and, and rather than treating it like a disease and, and a medical problem that could be solved with medical tools and, and, um, uh, we we've treated as a, as a criminal act, which, uh, it, it just exacerbates the problem. Mm-hmm. Why is it so deadly? Is it because it's potent at the so, yeah. receptor? Well, so the reason all opioids can be deadly is that um, they act in this pre-Botzinger complex in the brainstem where they inhibit, um, they cause respiratory depression. So they slow our breathing, Mm. right? So typically what happens, and and this is the problem with fentanyl, um, is, you know, someone who is you know, addicted to opioids, oftentimes, you know, they may have gotten it prescribed uh, by their doctor for legitimate pain and, um, you know, begin taking more and more of it also as prescribed, but then find it really difficult to get off or find that the reward that they get from it, whether, whether it's the euphoria or simply the, the relief from uh, some, some emotional or psychological pain that they're experiencing is, is, is enough that they then get addicted to it, right? Um, and as they continue to take it, 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 it works less and, you know, the, the efficacy diminishes and they, they, they build a tolerance to it. However, you don't tolerate to the respiratory depression, right? Mm. So, um, you, we even see in, in, in the clinic, right? So, um, there, there are patients that, uh, even under the supervision of a physician, you'll start to see respiratory depression as they give them higher and higher doses. So it's not necessarily something that um, is, uh, you know, someone just decided they wanted to get really, really high and take a ton of it and they they overdose. No, No, I think most often what happens is that people know exactly how much opioid they need to to get their fix, whether whether they're looking for a high or they're simply trying to keep the pain at bay. You know, they know how much they need. They think they're, they're getting a certain formulation. You know, they think they're getting heroin or they think they're getting morphine or oxycodone, but instead they're getting something that's, that's laced with fentanyl and, you know, it may not be mixed in well so that one, you know, one, you know, uh, dose of this powder has a, a lot more fentanyl in it than, than another, uh, you know, dose of this same, uh, mixture. And, um, you know, it, it, eventually you, 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 if you keep elevating the dose, you get to a point where it makes you unconscious and then you, you stop breathing. And I see. High, right. So. so, so eventually if you take enough of an opioid and it doesn't actually matter which opioid, it just turns out that fentanyl is the most potent. So you don't need that much. Yeah. It just slows down your breathing. And at some point it stops your breathing. Yes, that's right. And you basically just go to sleep, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, um, it's, it's tragic and, and, and really sad at, at so many levels, but, um, 
And, and it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a big problem. Um, you know, with, with COVID, obviously, you know, it's, we're not hearing about it nearly as much as we did, you know, a few years ago, but actually, uh, you know, during COVID, the number of deaths has really soared. Um, and, and just this, this year in 20, I should say it's 2022 now, but, uh, in 2021, we just passed 100,000 deaths per year due to opioid overdoses in the U.S. So, so I think that's actually more than COVID. Or am I wrong about that? Um, so the cumulative COVID deaths in the U.S. I think are now up in the hundreds of thousands, right? Mm-hmm. But um, you know, I, I can say that that the opioid deaths there are more deaths per year in the U.S. from opioid overdose than cardiovascular disease cancer wow. combined. So, so it's near, it's near to the top of, of the number oh, one cause oh, of mortality. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, another area that I want to ask you about is cannabinoids. Sure. Cause I, I know there's some overlap here. Um, yeah. Yeah. a lot of people talk about cannabis for chronic pain and I know there's some interesting, um, synergistic effects that can apparently happen between opioids and cannabinoids such that perhaps, you know, you could take something with THC in it, say, and that would allow you to get the same level of pain relief using a lower dose of your opioid. Do you know anything about what's going on there? Yeah. You know, I, I actually don't, um, I should probably, <laughs> um, as you know, in, in, in science, a lot of times you get sort of siloed into your, your, your little narrow niche and, and the, the, you know, I, 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 I know a bit about it, but I don't feel enough to, uh, to really, uh, um, give too much you know, detail other than it, there certainly is a, uh, an additive effect. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and, and there's a real synergy between not only cannabinoids, but a lot of the different, um, uh, analgesics and, you know, the, the, the cannabinoids, um, you know, I like to think of as sort of, um, you know, they, uh, they change the, the, sort of the, the synaptic signaling between you know, uh, neurons, right? And, and, and so they, they kind of act as a way of fine-tuning a lot of different processes, including pain, right? So it's really not, not terribly surprising that, you know, when you take a cannabinoid in addition to uh, a lot, any of the other analgesics that, that people find it beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, what about... Um... I mean, I imagine that there's a lot of effort to develop novel pain drugs. And I know that you've been involved in this in different ways. So, I mean, high level, like how does this work generally speaking? And is it possible, say, to, um, is it possible to make a novel pain drug that's, say, derived from an opioid such that it preserves the pain management component, but gets rid of things like the addictive potential or the respiratory depression aspect. Yeah, no, you know, there's a lot of folks doing interesting work in this space. Um, uh, Myself and, and a couple guys at at, at Harvard that I was in the lab with started a company blue therapeutics uh, five or six years ago doing this work. And, and, and that, that company is still ongoing and, and doing some interesting work. Um, you know, one of the ways before I get into to, to, to blue, you know, typically um, the way that people have gone about trying to develop non-addictive or less addictive opioids is uh, different ways of formulating them, right? So you can imagine that if you um, you make an extended release formulation, right, or something that 
uh, you know, in the extended release case, you might be able to just take one pill and you have sort of a slower, steady state. And so you don't get the, the peak in the serum levels that uh, could sort of trigger that euphoria. Um, you know, in, in theory that that works, but in, in practice, um, you know, people can just take, if they, they want to get high from an extended release opioid, they can just take a couple of them and then they're high for a long time. <laughs> right. And so, uh, that that's actually what happened with, uh, Purdue pharmaceuticals and, and, uh, mm. the, uh, Oxycontin, right. Which is an extended release oxycodone. So, you know, that was the first, um, attempt a lot of the first attempts were extended release formulations, which really ended up uh, causing more problems than than they helped. I think in a lot of a lot of cases. Um, other ways, you know, other folks have used biased agonism. So, um, you know, the mute opioid receptors are G-coupled protein receptors, GPCRs, and um, you know you can uh, you know, when you activate a GPCR, there are downstream signaling cascades that that uh, are respond to their activation and you can design molecules that favor one downstream signaling cascade over another and 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 see some differences in in the you know clinical uh, profile of those and there are some some companies doing that um, other other groups have uh, tried to come up with peripherally restricted opioids mm-hmm. so these are drugs that don't enter the brain or the spinal cord but act only in the periphery, act only in the, the body, right? On, on the, the opioid receptors in the skin and the muscles and whatnot. Um, and those have also shown some limited pros- promise, but um, you know, in clinical trials haven't worked that well. In my opinion, uh, it's not terribly surprising because um, you know, chronic pain, which is, is what is sort of the, 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 the big bad wolf of the pain space that's the most difficult to, you know, to treat and, and where there's the greatest need chronic pain is, is largely due to central sensitization. And so, you know, if, if the central sensitization is driving the chronic pain and your pain drug is peripherally restricted, it's probably not going to work all that well for mm-hmm. chronic pain. Right. Um, and so it's going to have a limited use case. Um, but you know, one approach that I think is just, um, the most interesting to me. And, and, and like I said, I gave several years of my life to, to this, um, is, um, using receptor receptor interactions as a, um, a a way to target subsets of opioid receptors. Mm. Um, so this could be done in any using, you know, to target any receptors, uh, in the brain or really anywhere in the body, but in the pain, uh, uh, in the opioid space, um, a guy named Phil Portugese, who's a medicinal chemist at university of Minnesota together with Ajay Yekarala, who is a, a PhD neuroscientist um, who, who did his PhD with, with, uh, with Phil, they came up with some molecules that activate opioid receptors only when they are interacting with each other, right? Mm. And so, for example, I mentioned earlier, there are three different types of opioid receptors, mu, kappa, and delta. They're, they are present in different parts of the brain um, you know, some areas they are present together, other areas, only one or the other will be available, uh, present. And so Ajay and Phil came up with a way to design molecules that activate these receptors only when they interact. So the, the one, the one that Blue Therapeutics, uh, pursued and, 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 and still is, uh, developing toward the clinic 
is a drug that acts on mu-kappa interactions. So if you have a mu-opioid receptor, which is present in, in the areas for the reward circuitry, the pain relief circuitry, as well as you know, some of these areas that underlie tolerance and, and withdrawal, and, you, and then you also activate uh, a kappa receptor, which is, is present in the pain relief circuitry, not present in the um, reward circuitry, but it is also present in some areas that cause dysphoria and, and some un unwanted effects. But if you, if you can activate only the interaction of those two receptors and only when they come together, you can, um, you can target certain tissues mm -hmm. that have only the, that, that, that express both of those receptors. Yeah. Right? It makes sense. So instead of the drug coming in and sort of hitting every possible receptor that it touches, you've now created a drug that in effect, it's only hitting a, a, a quite a small subset, I would imagine, of all right. of the individual opioid receptors. Right. And in this case, it's hitting the mu-kappa interaction mm -hmm. that occurs predominantly in the, the spinal cord uh, circuitry that is responsible for pain relief. And so... Uh, yeah. So, so the hope here, is, and I imagine this is what they're testing, is you can preserve much or all of the pain management side of things that you get with opioids while at least lowering the addictive potential or the overdose exactly. potential. Exactly. Right. Right. And, and they work quite well, right? So uh, Blue Therapeutics has a compound called Blue 181 that is um, similar in potency to fentanyl but it does not have respiratory depression. Hmm. It does not have tolerance. There's no place preference in rodents. And uh, it, it really, I mean, it looks uh, by all the preclinical measures like sort of the holy grail of pain relief, right? And in, in that it, it has this, pro this profile where extremely potent, really strong pain relief, no tolerance, no withdrawal. Um, and it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, like I said, it's currently you know, being developed and, and I was, uh, full, full disclosure, a part of that company, um, until about a year ago, uh, when I, uh, stepped away to, to, to pursue these, uh, additional technologies in the space to, um, uh, with black box bio, where we're, we're developing these assays for, uh, screening of, of additional pain drugs, as well as, um, uh, psychedelics and some other compounds. Interesting. Um, so, so it sounds like where we're at in the pain world is there's actually people have developed drugs today that preclinically, meaning in rodents, are as potent or comparably potent to something like fentanyl. They work for pain as measured in rodents. They don't have the respiratory depression side effect and they don't appear to be addictive or nearly as addictive. And so I guess it's, I suppose it's just a matter of time before we know whether that holds for humans. Yeah, I, I think so. You know, it's um, there's a lot going on behind the scenes that you know that I can't uh, get into on a you know, public podcast. But yeah, it looks really promising, and um, you know, and I do hope that, uh, that that we do get to see these drugs tested in human trials. Mm -hmm. So, so you mentioned that you are continuing work with this um, machine vision technology for doing automated behavior detection that right. we looked at previously. And you're doing things related to the psychedelic space, which I, I know you're sure. really interested in. So yeah, what, uh, yeah. what can you tell us about that stuff? Yeah. So um, Black Box Bio is the name of the company that um, is developing this uh, 
mouse touchpad technology that I showed the videos of earlier. And you know what what really came about there is that we realized pretty quickly that you know while this is super helpful in the pain space and and we want to you know develop a product and we have we we actually have a product. This is sort of my full time uh, gig right now, and, and we're selling these to. Uh, different labs and drug development companies, we, we realized that um, it's not limited to just the pain space, but we can sort of automate uh, detection of a lot of different behaviors that are um, important for a lot of different um, types of uh, therapeutic areas, right? And, um, you know, I, I've, I've long had an interest in psychedelics, um, and, and, and really, you've interviewed a lot of people on your show, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners are, are, are very familiar with the, the promise in, in the psychedelic space. And um, you know, they've, they've shown a lot of promise in, you know, for treating addiction and PTSD and anxiety, depression. And all of these um, disorders have common uh, circuitry and, and similarities at, at a lot of different levels with chronic pain. Right. So a lot of people with chronic pain have uh, a traumatic trigger. They have, um, you know, different, uh, you know, fear based and, and emotionally, uh, they have different emotional triggers that can cause the chronic pain, similar to how, you know, people with PTSD can have you know, emotional or, or, you know, situational triggers that can cause panic attacks and all these sorts of things. And, um, so the thought here is that we can use these some of these same tools that we can use to detect um, pain readouts in rodents. That we can use some of these same tools to uh, differentiate w- between some of the um, different phenotypes behaviorally and experientially of, of, of broadly speaking psychedelics. And I'm, I'm using that term loosely to include entheogens and, and dissociatives, which. Um, I, I think we can likely differentiate using this black box uh, mm-hmm. detection technology. I see. So, so one potential application here is, um, so again, this comes back to the problem of we like to, in general, in research, uh, people like to do work in animal models first and then pursue right. promising avenues uh, that right. come from that in humans. So just like uh, you can't ask a mouse if it's in pain and you have to come up with clever ways to assess the pain, you also can't ask a mouse if it's tripping on acid. You have to come up with some other way of doing that. Um, Do you want to mention how that works today and how how you might tie into that? Yeah. So, you know, right now, you know, there's um, the psychedelic space is an interesting space because there's been a lot of um, anecdotal and, and really well-developed experiential uh, literature on, on how people have experienced and, and used plant-based psychedelics, uh, not, not just in modern times, but, you know, for, for quite a long time. And, um, you know, there are, are benefits and uh, I'm certain a lot of uses for the naturally occurring psychedelics, but I think there are also a lot of uh, potential use cases that could be developed using uh, synthetics that are derived from these same compounds, and, and we can fine tune them to different indications and use cases, and, and, and maybe find ways to fit them better into our current healthcare system. Um, the difficulty there is that, or I should say, a difficulty is that uh, you know when you develop a uh, any new drug, 
that that's a new molecule that does not exist in nature. Uh, before you can test it in humans, you do have to test it in animals, both for efficacy and safety. Um, safety is something else that, that we're, we're, we're doing with the black box technology, but on the efficacy side, you know, psychedelics, there's really just one readout behaviorally that um, is used in, to detect uh, sort of the hallucinatory type properties of a psychedelic, and that is the head twitch in mice. And this is a rapid rotational movement um, that mice exhibit um, from all of the, the, the classical psychedelics, uh, but it's a very infrequent behavior and it's very difficult to detect. And so you end up having to literally have people watching videos of mice for hours on end and writing down, you know, a handful of head twitches that happen here and there. And the problem with this is that uh, while it is quite sensitive to uh, psychedelics, uh, it's infrequent enough that it means that a lot of animals have to be used. It's expensive to do and it takes a lot of time. Mm. So the first thing that we can do uh, with the black box technology is that we can automate this, right? So instead of people having to watch this, we can automate it and, and just right out of the gate, you know, uh, detect these, these head twitches automatically. Um, but beyond that, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that we're going to see quite a few uh, behavioral differences using some um, unsupervised machine learning approaches where we will be able to differentiate not only between is this a psychedelic or creating hallucination-like effects or not, but even to sort of uh, to, to really tease out, is this a compound that has entheogenic or empathogenic type properties? Is it anxiolytic, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, a few of your previous guests have talked about you know, the, um, the psychedelics tend to act on the serotonin H2A receptor, which produces hallucinations, but also a lot of the potentially a lot of the uh, therapeutic beneficial uh, aspects of psychedelics. But you also have the HT2B receptor. And, and so the HT2A, in addition to these, causes um, fear right? Which is why you know, if you take a really high dose of, of LSD, people report, you know, that they can have some really fearful uh, you know, experiences. Um, whereas the HT2B receptor, which is activated by compounds like MDMA, uh, 6-APB, some other compounds uh, can actually be anxiolytic. And so we've got some readouts. I'm happy to actually show you uh, a little video clip of how we can read out in real time using uh, different measures that I showed you earlier, um, the, the, the present state of anxiety in a rodent mm. by using the yeah, same yeah. technology. So if you want, I'll, sh I'll show you another little video this, um, of, of this. So let me go to this next slide. So um, anxiety and rats. So if you look at on the left here, we've got a rat. This is the same rat. So for those of you listening, there's a video of a rat walking around in a, in a, in a chamber and his paws are, are illuminated uh, using this uh, touchpad technology, the black box technology. And if you look at the contact points of the rat, it looks like he's standing on the pads of his feet. Mm -hmm. Instead of sort of the outline of a footprint, you see these points of light that are you know, sort of round points of light, like at the balls of his feet, right? And so that's what all the rats and mice for, 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 for you know, I'm just showing this so that we show that it works in both rats and mice, but see the same thing in mice. And that's, that's what all the rats look like after they've just been handled 
But if you leave the rat in the room and you leave the room, you, you see an entirely oh, wow. different footprint. So this is the same rat 10 minutes later. So I've left the room, just left the rat to hang out there and they get flat footed. And if you think about it sort of intuitively, it makes sense. It's almost like the, you know, uh, it's, it's, I, I think it's a vigilance readout, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if, if a rat is scared and, and sort of wanting to be ready to run, you know, they're kind of up on their tiptoes, just like yeah. a human sprinter would get on their toes to start a race. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and when they're calmed down, they get flat footed. And so we, we have this anxiety related footprint and, and that's dramatically different from the, the calm or, or the, the, you know, anxiolytic footprint. And, uh, we see this, it's not just, you know, after human handling, you can even, if, if you go to the door of the room where these animals are housed and you just jiggle the doorbell, it'll immediately go from this flat footed appearance to, you know, on the tiptoes again. Um, yeah. I mean, this, this makes a lot of sense. And I guess, you know, the idea here overall is, you know, using these objective readouts, you can not only do behavioral assessments faster and more cheaply, yeah. You can actually just detect things that you wouldn't have been able to detect before. And this isn't limited to pain. It's, it's right, theory, right. anything. Right. No, exactly. And, and, and I'll, just to mention a similar thing that, you know, because I, you know, really have this interest in the psychedelic space. Um, so this is actually um, a video of, it's actually a, a cropped video that I showed earlier. And this is just showing a, a flinch and lick response. So I'll play it again. So if you watch what, what this mouse does, um, so his, let me see here. I gotta think it's his left hind paw is, is uh, injured. He has an inflammation model. So his left hind paw, which is a little less bright is, is uh, presumably in pain and he kind of flinches it and then licks it, mm-hmm. right? And so I'll stop the video here right at the point. So right here, yep, yep. he flinches, he like shakes it and then Right after he shakes it, he licks it. And this is a, a, a very common um, sequence, right? And, and so if you apply heat stimulus to the foot of a mouse, they do the same thing. They flinch it and then they lick it. Um, but, but with dissociative drugs like ketamine and other, other compounds, they will flinch. But not so lick. you see that they, they have this pain phenotype, behavioral phenotype, but they don't lick it. They don't attend to it. Right. It's like they're aware that it hurts, but it's like not bothersome. Maybe I'm, you know, anthropomorphizing here, but um, point being that this is another, another behavior that we can automate. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and, and you can imagine when you start stacking these, these behaviors on top of one another, it makes it quite easy to, uh, to tell for novel compound is this, you know, if, if you're a, a drug, you know, psychedelic development company, which is a lot of activity in this space. And you've got, you know, 20 new compounds and, 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 you know, you think they're likely from some of the cell-based assays and uh, other approaches to be, you know, have psychedelic like properties, but is it more like MDMA? Is it more, you know, like uh, uh, an LSD or psilocybin mm-hmm. or, or is it even potentially a, uh, a dissociative compound? Right. Mm-hmm. And so, we can behaviorally really distinguish between all of those. And, um, you know, that's, that's sort of the next uh, you know, thing that we're doing there at Black Box commercially is that we are in the process right now of 
setting up a contract research organization in the Dallas-Fort Worth area to do high-throughput screenings for third parties. So we're not doing any of our own drug development work. Um, we're simply setting this up as an assay to provide a uh, service to the psychedelic drug development space for anyone that's developing compounds and, and really wanting to, to tease out you know, what, what kind of compounds do they have prior to, to entering in, into humans. I see. So, so it sounds to me like there's two two things going on that will synergize in terms of what you're doing with this. Right, right. One, you could just have someone, let's just say you had a research lab, whether it was academic or private, you were interested in screening compounds to see if they might be hallucinogenic. Today, the way that people do that is they have a researcher spend probably hours and hours looking for this head twitch response in video. So you guys can just automatically detect that so that they can do that type of screening faster. Right. The second thing that it sounds like you're doing is you could, you know, if if you gave um, different groups of animals, different drugs by videotaping them and using machine visions in the way that you've shown us, you could create a kind of behavioral fingerprint for each drug. Right. In other words, you know, animals, when they get MDMA, they tend to do these types of behaviors, but not these ones. Right. Those right. that get LSD, right. th- there might be some overlap, but it's different. Um, right. Even something like psilocybin versus LSD might have small differences between them. Sure. And then sure. you could take a completely novel drug, say, and just compare it to all of those known drugs with known effects in rodents and known subjective effects in humans. And in theory, that should be able to give you quite a bit of predictive power for what a novel drug will actually feel like. Yeah, we hope so. And, and, and I, I think that will be the case. Um, and I'm excited to figure it out. I mean, that's also one of the beauties of science, right? Is that you come in with these hypotheses and, and, and some data suggesting that it should work a certain way. And uh, then you, you give it a go and see how it does. So, yeah. Interesting. Um, last area I want to ask you about, David, is you know, since your expertise is in pain, and that's what we mostly talked about, yeah. Yeah. is there any indication you have or any Anything you might speculate on in terms of whether or not any of the psychedelics or dissociatives or other drugs like that have any potential related to pain that, you know, the one thing that comes to mind here for me um, to get you thinking on this is, you know, I know a lot of these drugs actually have sometimes very potent anti-inflammatory effects that yes. might be so potent that, that you could use sub-psychedelic doses to achieve yes. them. So yes. what are your thoughts in that direction? Boy, that we, we could do a whole a whole another podcast on on this topic, but I I think that there's a lot of promise, um, and um, you know, I've uh, yeah they, there there is uh, a lot of promise, and and I think that you know it's interesting the psychedelics because they have been scheduled as and and for those not from the U.S. or not familiar with the the FDA slash DEA. Um, process for controlling substances in the U.S. They, um, it's similar in other countries, but you know, the, the psychedelics have basically been put really arbitrarily into a category of saying they have no clinical benefit without, you know, despite the, the evidence that's been around for decades showing that they do have clinical benefit, but the, the, the downstream impact of this has been that it's been virtually in, impossible uh, for academic groups in particular to study these compounds at, at length and to look at, you know, what are the, the anti-inflammatory properties of these compounds and can we harness that to develop a, a therapeutic? So certainly, you know, uh, all the way from, you know, the, the various psilocybin strains of mushrooms to 
peyote and other compounds, there are a wide range of anti-inflammatory compounds and um, molecules, right? Terpenes, triterpenoids that are um, that are present in in you know uh, these compounds. I'm I'm particularly interested in in the cacti and um, some of the mescaline related um, uh, compounds as, as well as triterpenoids that are in the cacti and how they may have analgesic properties. And, um, uh, but, but also I think that there's really a lot of interesting overlap and, and uh, potential synergy between the ways that um, psychedelics are being used with psychedelic assisted psychotherapy for um, anxiety, depression, and whatnot that could that could translate to to using the same approaches for treating chronic pain. Mm-hmm. So we know that a lot of chronic pain is kept um, alive. I shouldn't say we know. There, there, there's there's a lot of evidence to support uh, the hypothesis that that in many cases chronic pain is kept alive and kept chronic by a fear of the pain itself. Mm-hmm. Right, and I've experienced this right where you know you. Uh, you know, you, you, you have a bruise on your leg, right. From, from kickboxing and, you know, you're not thinking about it, but you, you know, almost run into something or you, you, you have something that triggers a fear of that pain. And as soon as you have that fear, suddenly you're aware of the pain again. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for people that have uh, traumatic experiences that um, are tied to, to their chronic pain. My folks, I mentioned earlier in the podcast that they were in a, a plane crash and, and my mom still today has, has a lot of chronic pain and it is, it's like clockwork when, when she has sort of some, some emotionally challenging experience or, or when, when things related to her plane crash come up, her chronic pain is back and it's, it's in debilitating. It can even put her in the hospital. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, having seen this firsthand, you know, with her and also just kind of understanding, you know, how central sensitization works, it makes sense to me that uh, the psychedelics do hold a lot of promise for chronic pain. And, and it's a space that I hope to move into. Uh, mm-hmm. in the future. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying is evocative of more or less what seems to be going on with something like MDMA for PTSD, at least conceptually, you know, right. it's, it's sort of somehow dampening the strength of the association that someone has with some past traumatic event. And that's, you know, that's more or less, I think what, what you're referring to here. Yes, no, exactly. Exactly. Um, And it, 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 it's really an exciting time. And and I think there's um, a lot to be hopeful for, for chronic pain patients. And um, you know, a lot of uh, activity investment development is needed as well as a lot of advocacy, I think for, um, you know, both, both for uh, continued funding for developing these therapies as, as well as continued access for the plant-based compounds that, that people uh, would like access to um, prior to the, you know, release of these, um, you know, marketed FDA approved compounds. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a pretty good spot to end it, David. Um, thank you for your time and yeah. for all you've uh, shared with us. And I look forward to following what uh, is on the horizon for some of the stuff that you're working on. Thank you, Nick. And I really appreciate uh, your time as well. Mm-hmm.